Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. All right, well, it's time for us to get started, so if you want to come on in and have a seat. It's good to be back with everybody, and as I'm sure you're aware, Claire and I were in Guatemala last week. Uh, We left on Thursday of the previous week and got back last night. I think we got up at what would be 2 o'clock here yesterday morning, and um, but we got some good rest, so we're good, we're good. Um, I was excited to get back into the States and have some American food. I stopped at Del Taco on the way home from the airport, so <laughs> they, don't, they don't have tacos there. Like, like I want American tacos and, and stuff like that, so we stopped at Del Taco and I got a burrito. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. But I'll talk about the, the work there that we did um, during the sermon and give some lessons that I learned from it. I'll have some pictures to share. I shared most of these pictures already on our church Facebook group and stuff like that. But um, I want to let everybody know what's going on there since we support the work there. And um, we actually did a special donation to a, a building project that we were able to be a part of while we were there. So I'll talk more about that during the sermon. I'll also talk about Bible camp. Did you know that starts in like a week from today? So you all... I expect you to see you up there next weekend. Um, but So Bible camp's coming up. Keep that in your prayers. It's going to be a good work. We're expecting a, um, a, a talented group of staff and some amazing campers, and it's going to be an uplifting week for sure. Um, last week I wasn't in here because I wasn't here, so we're going to pick back up with the book of 1 Timothy. Remember, we're walking through the text of this letter, and we're trying to understand what the Apostle Paul's intended message to this young evangelist was, and then how to make proper application of it to us. Um, all, all scripture is necessarily, it is applicable, but we have to figure out how to necessarily apply it. And that's kind of what we're doing as we go through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, but I believe the book of 1 Timothy can be summed up in chapter 3, verse 15, which I think is a key verse of the book. Which says, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. Paul is writing to Timothy to help lead the church in Ephesus to godliness, but get out of your mind the idea that when he talks about the church, he's talking about the building or even talking about worship services. The church is so much more than that. Yes, part of the church is the assembly and what goes on there. And sometimes that takes place in a building, but I mean, the church needs to be the church all the time. We live like the pillar and support of truth all the time. We are the church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, as well as, you know, Sunday. And that's kind of what this book is about. By way of review, though, it was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it to a young man named Timothy, and Timothy is working in a city called Ephesus. What do you know about Timothy? Mother and grandmother taught him. Very true. What else? I'll take the cheat sheet away. Hold on. All right. What else do you know about Timothy? He was a companion of Paul. What else? He's young. Um, came from a diverse religious background. Was his father Greek? Mother wasn't. You know that kind of idea. So um, there's that diversity there. What do you know about the city of Ephesus? Yeah, they worshipped idol gods, and primarily there was even a temple to Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember that con, uh, conflict that went on in the book of Acts about that, also called Diana there. Um, the church, in, yes, did you ever end up? Uh, 
Nope, you're just scratching. All right. Um, the, the church of Ephesus, I think, was probably larger in size by this time um, because they're looking to appoint elders and deacons and um, there's widows they're having to care for. So, I mean, they, they probably at least have more than 10, okay, people there, um, you know, to make this happen. Uh, we know a lot about Timothy. I want to talk more about him there. Um, the reason for the writing we already mentioned, repeated words in this book would be godliness, teach, command, and faith along with others, and the date of place of the writing is most likely between Paul's first and second imprisonment around 63 A.D., and Timothy's task is to lead that church to godliness by preaching the commandments and doctrines of God. Um, we've looked at the beginning of chapter 1 where Paul warns Timothy, watch out. There's some people who are misusing the law of God, and they are taking the Old Testament, and they're, and they're twisting it in different ways, and they are misleading the church with that. And then we also saw that the purpose of the law is good. The law itself isn't bad just because some people are misusing it. But the law um, should lead you toward that glorious gospel that Paul is a preacher of. And that's kind of where we left off two weeks ago where Paul talks about, look, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. You should be too. And I'm thankful to have this stewardship passed on to me. Why is Paul so thankful to be an apostle? When he looks at his salvation, what does he go back and reflect upon um, as evidence of God's grace? His guilt? Because what did, he, what did Paul do before he became a Christian? He was a violent persecutor. He was a blasphemer, verse 13 says. But yet God showed him mercy. And now, you know, he says, my job is to save sinners, which... I am the foremost of, or the chief of sinners, depending on, on your translation. Paul doesn't look at himself arrogantly. He never walks in like, I am Paul, I'm the best. He goes, hey, I'm just a recipient of God's grace, and I want you to be too. Yes, Jim. He saved him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah God offers the same mercy to us that he offered the apostle Paul. That same mercy that allowed Paul, the violent persecutor, to become the amazing apostle is offered to us. And when you're given that kind of kindness and mercy and grace, you know, in movies and things, we'll talk about, I owe you a life debt, you know, that kind of thing. And that's kind of like what we have with, with God is, is he's given us that abundant grace and mercy, and now we live 100% for him. He's number one in our life. Questions or thoughts up through verse 17 by way of review before we pick up in verse 18? Okay, and I might have an answer. I might not. What's your question? Okay, you're mixing a couple things. Um, Yvonne says, well, Paul says here that he committed blasphemy, and blasphemy is an unforgivable sin. Um, first off, the passage you're, you're thinking of is where blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is called an unforgivable sin. He doesn't necessarily say he did that there. And I also don't think that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Guess you have to come to my Mark class, everybody, and I'll tell you what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in my Mark class. Um, but Paul here, um, but I, I don't think that necessarily relates to this. Paul is viewing his persecution of the church as blasphemy. How would Paul's persecution of the church be considered blasphemy? Okay, he's going against the word of God. What else? Do you think that in the midst of all that, first off, he's, he's profaning that which is holy. God died for, Jesus died for the church and something that's his bride. So when you're trying to kill it, that's profaning it. Also, that he was, wasn't doing it in the name of Jesus. He's probably rejecting Jesus and mocking Jesus and, you know, and, and insulting Jesus during this time. 
We're not just talking about a, a nice little friendly soldier kind of thing here. No, this is a guy that's out to get the church and probably speaking evil of Jesus and all sorts of stuff was going on in his old life. So that would be the blasphemy that I think he, he committed, which a lot of us, I mean, before Christ, did you ever use the Lord's name in a vain way? Did you ever use it as a swear word? Did you ever mock Christians? Did you ever, you know, all that kind of stuff? That, that, that would be blasphemy. Other questions or thoughts? But like Jim mentioned, too, if he can be forgiven, we can, too, and we get that same mercy. All right, so verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy. So now he's bringing it home direct to the recipient of this letter. Timothy, young evangelist, single guy, working in a big city church of Ephesus. And he tells him, Timothy, my son. Why does he call him a son? Converted him, close to him, mentorship, you know, kind of that relationship there. He goes, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. What prophecies were made about Timothy? Do you know of any? Does the scripture talk about any prophecies made about Timothy anywhere? You know, going through the book of Acts, I don't see a record of this, but clearly there was something. Um, you do have, for example, in 2 Timothy, he talks about, um, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which was in you through the laying on of my hands. Um, and then he talks about laying on, think of the elders' hands later in the same idea. Um, I don't know. But apparently there was some sort of prophecy, prediction, setting apart, um, telling of God's plan for Timothy that was made. I don't know what it was. It could have been some kind of intimate thing where Paul says, look, God has big plans for you. It could be something... <clears throat> more grandiose, where someone received a message from God that says, this young man, Timothy, is going to preach. I don't know. But Paul knew about it, and Timothy obviously knows about it, and he tells us about it, so we go, okay, apparently there was a prophecy. So he says, Timothy, I entrust you, you know, Paul already said he's been entrusted with the gospel, now he says, I entrust you, Timothy, with that same thing, I entrust you, Timothy, my son, and I'm doing this in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And you're going to see that terminology repeated later in this, in this same book, and then as you get into 2 Timothy, this idea of fighting a good fight. And we're going to talk about what that fighting, that good fight is here in a second, but I, I believe Paul's trying to pump Timothy up a little bit here, trying to get him motivated. He's going to be going into a difficult work. He's going to be there in Ephesus, and there's going to be people that make fun of him for his youth. We read about that later on. He's going to have to rebuke older men. That's not going to go over real well. He's going to have to make sure the old ladies are taken care of. He's going to have to do all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, and, and avoid immorality and avoid idolatry. It's going to be a challenge. So Paul says, all right, Timothy. There's prophecies made concerning you. I want you to go out there, and I want you to fight the good fight. You know, if, I'm, if Roman is about to go out there on the mat and, and grapple, and I have a mat set as I'm coaching, I'm like, all right, Roman, look, you train harder. You're tougher than this guy. No one's as fast as you. No one is good, as good as you. You're going to go out there, and you're going to win. Aren't you, Roman? Yes, I am. Woo, go get him. Right? That kind of thing. That's what, what Paul is kind of doing here with Timothy. I think he's really trying to motivate him. You know, you go out there, and you fight the good 
fight, and I like the terminology for fight, one, because I, I like fight sports, and two, because Timothy's a young guy. Young guys like fight words. And if he goes, now, Timothy, go out there and, I don't know, cultivate the garden of their mind. That's kind of, you know, I wouldn't say it like that. I go, go out there and fight that good fight. And that's what he tells him. And then he tells him why or how, verse 19. Because before we talk about what fight the good fight means, let's see what the text says. Verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So what are two ways that Timothy, according to verse 19, can fight the good fight of faith? Keep a good conscience and keep the faith. Make sure you are staying faithful yourself and make sure you have a good conscience in all of this. Make sure your character is not flawed. I think a lot of times we don't vet people's characters good enough. Um, and I've been thinking about this lately as I hear about church controversies and um, abuse scandals and all these kinds of things. You know, the way he's supposed to fight the good fight here is not be the greatest public speaker. Not be the most charismatic front man for this church. Not be the best event planner. Not be the best author and writer. The way that Timothy is supposed to fight the good fight is how? Not right here. He doesn't say that yet. Later he's going to. Here he says, keeping the faith and keeping a good conscience. His character, first and foremost, is important when it comes to fighting the good fight. Because if Timothy, verse 20, is going to have to rebuke these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, if he has a character flaw that's glaring and obvious, don't you think that's going to show through? Isn't that going to undermine what he's going to be doing? Yeah, it undermines all that message. Um, um, one of the guys who I recently was reading about, there was a, an author and a public speaker named Rabbi Zacharias who did some amazing works and like his books there were powerful. Then you find out after the fact he was doing all sorts of like this immoral stuff and a lot of people are now giving up on Jesus because of this guy's flaws in his life. Now, I know you shouldn't give up on Jesus because someone else messes up, but... If your character's flawed, it's going to hurt the faith of other people. And Timothy's not going to be able to fight that good fight if his character is flawed. I was um, actually talking to a preacher friend this last week uh, about this idea, too. I always thought it was interesting that Jesus waited till he was 30 to start his ministry. And now that I'm old, I look back at Cliff Sabre's ministry in the 20 to 30 year range, and I think, yeah, I should have vetted my my you know way of thinking and behavior a little bit better in that kind of stuff. And there's a maturing process, and Timothy needed to make sure that he was mature. He needs to keep the faith. He needs to have a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Back up to verse 5, then we'll talk about this. Look at verse 5, same chapter. And if you want to circle and draw an arrow from 5 to 19, feel free to do that. But he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is not just to preach the truth. Just because, well, they preach the truth. Yeah, but they're a jerk. Or, yeah, but they mistreat their family. Yeah, but they're sleeping around. Yeah, but they're not godly people. Yeah, but they preach the truth. 
Here, the goal, love, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. This is something we got to think about, too, even when we get into chapter 3, when we talk about qualifications of elders and, and, and deacons and things. We always look at the surface qualifications, don't we? Well, do they have Christian children? And that's everyone wants to talk about that. The main part here when he talks about is good reputation, um, ruling their household. What are those? Those are character descriptors. Are they a godly person from the inside out? Those are the harder ones sometimes to even follow. We can fake the others. I mean, I could fake through a sermon and everybody goes, hey man, Cliff, great sermon. And I could be a horrible person that day. And no one will know, but God knows. Yeah, Mark. Well, I think it grows always. Um, the Bible uses a word called sanctification, which we're immediately justified when we become a Christian, but sanctification is a lifelong process. Um, and I think the more time we spend involved in godly activities, whether it be prayer, whether it be serving other people, reading God's word, you know, meditating upon it, loving others, that will help develop it. But I think it's also we need to ask God to help refine us from that within too, you know, where ultimately our spirit is producing the fruits of the spirit is what we need to do. But it's a lifetime journey. I, my conscience, I think now is better than it was two years ago. I think my faith is even more sincere now than it was, you know, a month ago. But it is a, a lifelong journey. Anybody got an answer to what Mark said? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, you know, Tom says you got to do that inward self-evaluation. You know whether or not you actually love somebody, but maybe others don't. You know whether or not you actually are committed to Jesus. Yes, Yvonne. Oh, yeah. It's an ongoing, you know, life because we have to be careful because there's some people that have, had, that have rejected the faith and suffered shipwreck in regard to it. Some people, according to this passage here, they, because of the actions of other people, have had their faith shipwrecked, and there's others that have turned away because they haven't kept a good conscience. There were leaders in the early church, there's leaders in the church now, that aren't there necessarily for godly reasons. They maybe like the influence, or they like the reputation, or they like the attention, or they like the feelings of superiority they get, or it's, I don't know, um, calms their conscience just enough that they don't feel guilty for the rest of the week because they went to church on Sunday, you know, that kind of thing. And that happens. And he goes, there's some that have rejected, they didn't, have a, they didn't keep the faith, they didn't have a good conscience, and they suffered a shipwreck, and that's a universal application. We understand what a shipwreck looks like, right? Um, and he goes, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handled or handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. There's a lot here we got to talk about. But let's think about this just for a second. This letter was written to Timothy, but it was also read publicly in the church. And it was also shared with other churches. These guys are probably in the audience when this is read. Guys, I got a letter from Paul today. Let me read it to the church. And they're all gathered together. And I don't know, maybe they're in Alexander's house even. And they go, and Paul says, dear church in Ephesus, I love you. You're great. By the way, Alexander and Hymenaeus are horrible people. And I turn them to Satan. Imagine, imagine hearing that. Imagine having that kind of name calling of, your, of yourself there. That would be, 
That'd be something very humbling, I would guess. But we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, and it mentions these two guys, Alexander and Hymenaeus. They're there in the church in Ephesus, and apparently they are leading other people astray. How do you think they were doing that according to chapter 1? Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, because we read earlier that there was people in the church in Ephesus that were taking like the Old Testament law and they're misusing it in a way to make people feel guilty and to also promote immoral behavior, verse 10, in which um, a lot, you'll find that people will take maybe scripture and they will manipulate it as a way to exploit other people, um, there in Guatemala last week, I was talking to a couple local missionaries there, and I was talk, asking about um, the influence of various religious groups there and, and some of the challenges, and they said one of the big things that they are fighting right now is um, kind of a quasi-prosperity gospel, very charismatic type movement that's very much taking advantage of a lot of people there. They said because you have people that are living in very poor conditions, that want hope and they want a better financial future and a guy shows up and wearing way nicer clothes than they have, driving a way nicer car than they drive, having a nicer house than they have and he gets up there on a stage and says, you can have this too if you follow me and give me your money, you know? And the whole idea is you give $1, God will bless you with 100 that kind of thing. Well, hey, if you're barely making it, I mean... We do the same thing in America. Well, who are the people that normally buy lottery tickets? It's not wealthy people. It's everybody goes, I got $1, maybe I can hit it big. Well, these people got $1 left, maybe they can hit it big in the spiritual lottery. And they're getting taken advantage of by these church leaders that are trying to exploit people. People back then were exploiting people too. Um, I was listening to one of the locals there talk about one of these big charismatic uh, frontman Prosperity Preachers there has a church of 60,000 people rented out the soccer arena in, in the city there and flew in on a helicopter and came into the middle and passing collection plates all up and down these stands of people that don't even have running water. You know, it's, um, it's kind of sad. But here in verse 20, you have Alexander and Hymenaeus who are in some way exploiting the people there in Ephesus, taking advantage of them, shipwrecking their faith, causing people to fall away. And, I mean, it could be that they were teaching them to do things that are false. It could be that they were taking advantage of them some way. It could be that they were making them doubt their salvation. But these two guys are causing problems there in the church in Ephesus. But then Paul says this, I have handed them over to Satan. What is he talking about? Pretend I'm not your preacher, I'm just some guy, and I read this, and I go, hey, um, church in Visalia, I was reading my Bible the other day, and that Apostle Paul that you said you like said he gave a guy to the devil. What does that mean? Okay, Beverly said it's tough love. What does that look like, Beverly? So kind of like kicking him out, saying you're not part of this group anymore. Um, okay, maybe, maybe my kid is living a completely criminal lifestyle, and I go, look, that's not going to happen in my house. You can come back when you clean up your act and I kick him out, that kind of thing. Okay. What else do you think? A little punishment? You think he walked up and slapped him? You, th you said punishment. I just came up with my own. I said public slapping. <laughs> What's that? Okay, so maybe through the 
the message, he's driving some people away, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, the same message that motivates us to love and follow Jesus angers other people, kind of thing. Okay, other thoughts? Anybody else? Maybe like a, a, a disfellowship kind of thing, as where the church is removing them from it. You know, the only other passage that I can think of that kind of parallels this terminology is, um, and I don't like leaving the book of 1 Timothy, but um, it is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have the situation where there's a big scandal in the church there. It seems like there's a, a guy in there that's in a illicit affair with possibly his stepmom. It, it, it's, it's really bad. Um, and in verse 4, Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on and says, don't associate with those people. And then verse 13, um, he says, remove the wicked man from among yourself. So I kind of go with what kind of like Beverly and Tom was saying a little bit, that I think he's saying, kick them out. Get them out of there because maybe they'll get that wake-up call they need. Yeah, Mark. Similar. You know, look, you made your bed, now you lie in it until you change this kind of ways. Uh, I think that. I think by Paul um, publicly saying these guys' names right here, that's, that's driving them away. I mean, they're going to leave. They're not going to stick around. Um, and he says, so I'm, I'm saying, look, you're going to live a, a, an ungodly life and try to infiltrate the church. No, you're not part of the church. Get out, and you can't hang around us anymore until you, you change. And so maybe they're, they're not showing up to the, the gathering at so-and-so's house on Tuesday. And they're not coming together for what the early church called a love feast, you know, that kind of thing. They're not communing together. They're not around now. We're kicking those guys out because they're causing problems, and he wants them to be taught not to blaspheme. Yes, did you read it? Verse 14. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'll have to look into that. I mean, Alexander was a very common name because Alexander the Great, you know. So there's a whole bunch of guys. I mean, even my kid's name is Xander. So not Alexander, by the way, just Xander and not with an X, with a Z, because these are cool. Um, but I don't know. Anybody got any insight on that one? Is it related to that guy? I will research this one. Or you can research this one and come back to the class. And there's your homework assignment, Mark. We want a half-page paper on the Alexander from First uh, Timothy 1 to Alexander to Coppersmith. But that's a good question, but I, I, I don't know on that one. Anything else up through verse 20? Oh, he says also so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul says, I used to blaspheme, but I change and receive mercy. He wants these guys to be taught not to blaspheme. So one, they stop hurting the church. But number two, what could also happen to them? They can learn and be saved too and, and repent is kind of what he wants there. Anything, anything up through verse 20? Yeah. Sometimes you got to, you know, purge the leaven out of the lump to get it out of there. Um, I've removed people from a, um, a class that I'm coaching before because they're bringing down the rest of the team. I've kicked kids out of Bible camp before because they're bringing down the rest of the group. It's not a reform camp. You know, there's other place for that. If you're going to bring down the rest of the group, I'll kick you out. Yeah, Greg. Maybe. There's, a, there's obviously kind of a, a backstory and stuff going on here that we don't see everything with because he says he's handed them over to Satan. So was there already a previous 
gathering of this? Was it, was, did this already happen? And um, now they're recounting it too. Um, I don't know, but I think, hey, church comes together. They're working as a united front against this false teaching is, is what we see. Kind of like Greg mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, when they gathered together, they dealt with the issue. Um, and there's other passages that talk about, you know, removing sinful influences from the, from the church. Um, there's a difference between someone who's sinning and trying to follow Jesus and someone who's trying to bring down other people. We can't have those people that are trying to bring down other people. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in a business environment. What's the biggest complaint people talk about companies? A negative culture, right? That means they have bad people there. They get them out, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, if you've got uh, a toxic influence in a family, it's sometimes it's like, you got to get out of here, that kind of thing. Or um, even in a church, a team, uh, whatever, you have to remove that from them. Anything else through verse 20? All right, so now 1 Timothy chapter 2, we take kind of now the practical side. So I believe chapter 1 is kind of an introduction to what Paul is trying to get to in this letter. He goes, all this stuff is going on. There's these guys that are teaching false. There's people that are leading people astray. But you need to stand up. You need to fight a good fight. You need to keep a good conscience. You need to lead the church of godliness. And here's how you're going to do that. And number one, I think it has to do with um, make sure that everything we do as a church, as individuals, is pointing toward us living a peaceful, godly, dignified Life, And that's really what kind of chapter 2 is all about. This is the kind of life that we should strive for. Peaceful, godly, dignified. Sometimes we don't live like that, though. Sometimes we act in a very ungodly way or an undignified way or a way that isn't peaceful. Christians should be seeking that. So in a world of chaos, we should be the source of peace, stability, dignity. Um, it doesn't matter if there is civil unrest, political problems in the world, violence in the streets, you know, wars going on. We need to be the voice of calm, peace, and reason. Let's read chapter two, verse one. First of all, then, so now he goes, here's my list of what you should do. And I like this because Paul does a typical preacher thing. He starts with number one, and then he really never tells you number two and number three, but they're in there somewhere. Um, he goes, first of all, he goes, I urge, and that's a, a petition verb, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings me be made on behalf of all men. So first thing we should do, the way we're going to promote peace and godliness in the world is we need to be people who pray. And he gives all different examples of prayer here. He says entreaties, Prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. He's giving you every kind of way you can look at praying, okay? I don't want to make a bulleted list of, well, these are different categories. They all intertwine. It's, he's just saying, pray. Talk to God on behalf of all men. And, it's, and, you know, he's talking about every kind of people, obviously. But why should we pray for all people? What does that do for us? Why, wait, let's back up. Why would praying for Alexander and Hymenaeus be a good thing? To so get them to repent. What else? He wants all people to be saved. Causes us to think about them. Yeah, maybe now they're on our mind and we reach out to them. Um, if you ever don't know what to do, like, I don't need to pray, pull out your church directory and just start flipping pages and praying for those people. Why not that? 
Why not go through your friends list on Instagram and just start praying for those people? You just start thinking about people and praying, and that will help you lead toward, you know, this godliness we're talking about. So he mentions prayers for all people. Then verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And godliness is a key word to this book. So not only are we praying for your average people, but we're praying for those that are in positions of power and influence too. They were needing to pray for the king. You think that might be hard for some Christians to pray for the king? Why would that be hard, Ted? So, I mean, you're going to have Caesars and stuff and, and emperors that are going to take Christians, put them on stakes, and light them on fire to light up their community garden. Pray for them. They're going to sew them in animal skins and feed them to lions in the, in, I don't know if it's a Colosseum, but in arenas, you know what I mean? Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. He doesn't mention just worship, though, here. Notice, he's, yeah, he says that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I know we always emphasize that we might be able to assemble, which we should pray for that. I'm glad we're able to assemble peaceably. However, he's talking about in all things. Then we just lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Not so that we don't have to make a scene. So that we don't have to be like, uh, well, we shouldn't be. We're not trying to be political leaders to, to influence the world. That's not, that's not our place as the church. We're not activists in that regard. We are, we are warriors for social justice and we are activists toward the gospel and all of that. But we're not... In the political arena, we're not all of that. We're just trying to do our thing. We're just trying to help people. We're trying to show love. We're trying to live in peace. We're trying to, you know, as you go on here, he's going to talk about even gender roles and stuff. And it seems it's just like, look, be, be quiet, be tempered, love your wife, love your husband, love your kids, and be a good person. That's really kind of what he is presenting here. That's the kind of thing we need to pray for so that we can just do our thing in godliness and dignity. Yes. Uh-oh. Yvonne says she has a weird question. Well, there was a different time. She was talking about David asking God to remove, because I mean, he was asking him to slay his enemies and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't recommend you ask God to slay people. Um, <laughs> I've thought about it. Maybe I've done it. But, um, you know, I, I don't think we should do that. Um, we're not under, and also too, just because everything David prayed might not be the kind of prayer we should be praying, but um, I, I don't think we, I think it's kind of apples and oranges a little bit, different times, different era, because God also doesn't tell us to lead a physical army into Canaan, you know, that kind of thing. I'll make it clear to you, don't take up arms and become a physical army and lead them anywhere. That doesn't go well for the church, okay? We're still trying to shake the bad reputation we had during the Crusades, okay? Yes, So less like David, more like Jesus. Yeah. That's exactly right. Jim hits the nail on the head. Our job is not to be like even examples in the Old Testament, even the early church. Our job is to be like Jesus. You know, Jesus is that perfect example. When Jim mentions that Jesus lived that example of the kind of life we should, he prayed, he helped, he loved, he taught, 
he lived what we would consider a quiet life in dignity and godliness. When there was an opportunity for him to make a giant scene, what are we reading in the book of Mark? What did he do a lot of times? He slipped away. He got out of the limelight, right? And they killed him for it. But when you kill somebody like that, well, he starts a church that's still around to this day. That's how you change the world. So I think that's really kind of what we need to be working toward. That's the impact that we're going to have. It's not me become the next, I'm trying to think of a well-known political, you know, activist kind of preacher, and I got in my mind Al Sharpton or like um, um, Billy Graham's kid. Um, I don't remember, Franklin Graham. But um, those are two that popped in my head right now. Um, That's not our job, okay, is to do that. Our job. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.